You're listening to Q&A Over Coffee. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for obtaining accounting, tax, or financial advice from a professional accountant. My daughter gave us a tap demonstration last night, two demonstrations, yeah. Really? On her garage floor, yeah. I kept on worrying she was going to fall over. She never did. But. A week. A week? <laughs> and she's giving you tap lessons. That's awesome. How yep. old is she? Uh, almost five. That's so cool. She was in a immersive dance camp last week. So That's pretty cool. I've always, I've, I love watching the old tap dancers like Sammy Davis Jr. Um, some of those guys were just amazing. They could do that. And the footwork. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. It's really quite incredible. Welcome, listeners, to the fifth installment of the Q&A Over Coffee podcast. Today's topic is going to be about mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Daniel Owens of Olson Thielen, alongside my esteemed colleague, Matthew Klein of Olson Thielen, and our guest... Hi, good morning, guys. It's Byron Weberdink. I am the CFO of Omni Workspace International, a office products and service installation dealer in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Well, thank you very much, Byron. Uh, we're going to go over quite a few things today with Byron, but. Um, you know, Byron uh, in his career has uh, gone through a couple of these and can, has probably learned a few things along the way about uh, best practices, good things to do, um, not so good things to do as it comes to uh, acquisitions. So um, we're not going to go into any really specifics. Um, you know, we're going to keep this fairly high level uh, just for confidentiality purposes and such. But um, we'll start off here. Um, if you could just kind of give yourself an overview of you know, either your company's recent acquisitions or some of the historical acquisitions that you were a uh, party of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, I have been, <clears throat> excuse me, with uh, Omni Workspace now. It's going on four years in October. Uh, and in that time, we have looked at a couple of transactions. We closed one in September of last year, another office products dealer that you helped us support uh, in New Mexico. Prior to coming to Omni Workspace, I was with another private company called Liberty, and in that time frame, I was there 20 years. We did between 25 and 30 different transactions over the years. So everything from office products dealers to corrugated box plants to manufacturing. So it was a pretty wide array. Um, and so we've, you know, th- you learn a lot of the do's and don'ts. But I will say that um, every transaction has its unique um, challenges as well as opportunities, uh, depending on timing and where you are. Thanks, Byron. Uh, mergers and acquisitions have some significant financial implications and challenges, and each one is different. But typically, generally speaking, how did your company approach these financial aspects, whether using you know existing cash that was already on hand or, or using your uh, line of credit or lenders to, uh, to help finance these purchases? You know, I've, I've been very lucky in that, uh, coming from businesses being privately held that either had dry powder or we have already had an existing revolver. So we've never had to go to the capital markets. I can tell you it it's, makes it a lot easier when work that you have to do is just working with your banking liaison and just figure out if you have the right line, um, getting the appropriate approvals and so on. So for us, it's always been um, 
an easier way to do the transaction than having to go out and get money from uh, a third party. Um, but, you know, we also look at uh, multiples and every industry that I've been part of has a different multiple structure. So you have to look at that quality of earnings and, and see what's predictable, what's going to be repeatable, and what's going to be additional or go away. So it's, it's always... Um, it actually is a great deal of fun to work on the transaction side and then work with your banker on what the right level of funding is based on the EBITDA of that business, and then is it accretive or not? Doesn't the um, market at the time kind of determine how you want to finance it? Like, if it's hot, right, obviously the seller wants a bunch of cash up front. If it's a down market and not many offers are coming in, they might be willing to take a little bit of cash up front and then do a seller loan. Yeah, you know, we the last transaction we did, we actually ended up with some uh, a, a seller note and, a, and earn out. So it can happen. I think it also depends upon the risk of the transaction. You know, is there any concentration within the within the business, which will dictate, you know, more money up front and with an earn out based on um, performance or retaining that big customer. So absolutely, there's and like I said, they're always unique. There's transaction we've done 100% at close with a with a clawback if something doesn't work or you know an earnout that goes over three years so yeah it, it it does depend on the on the specific transaction the strength of that and the economy right you know you, you came out of COVID coming out of COVID it was it's different in what people have expectations around for multiples or how and when they get their cash generally they want their their cash as fast as they can get it so that's interesting on all the ones that you've done. Uh, you really haven't had to bring any kind of uh, outside outside parties in terms of uh, in terms of capital that they're providing. So um, I'm a little more naive to some of these things, but so does that mean that you really haven't, in most acquisitions you've done, haven't had to involve the services of like a in investment banker? Is that correct? Absolutely. You know, and even buying businesses over the years, I will say that um, having come from the industries where I've worked, of the tw- multiple transactions we did i believe we bought one from an investment banking company the rest were direct from owners and so not that we steered away from it but we found that um with our connections in the market space and where we wanted to grow either geographically or within a specific segment we were able to to coordinate the transactions with the actual sellers so yeah very limited experience working with bankers with the exception of one transaction well certainly even if you're not using investment bankers you have to be using the ser- services of attorneys. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that process when you engage the attorney and, um, you know, in terms of drafting the language, are, do, does each firm kind of its own standard template? I mean, I know each of these deals, they're all kind of different in terms of the language, but just tell me, tell us about a little bit of that process of that, engaging the attorney and kind of drafting that, you know, initial initial letter of intent and the purchase agreement, et cetera. Yeah, you know, it, it also depends on your, your ownership of the company you're with. You know, we, we had an internal general counsel prior to this but now we have owners that have legal backgrounds and so they'll help draft actually the LOI um, to get that started you know the the key to that that attorney relationship with the business is they have to really know what you want to get out of the deal Um, but it's also then on the front end I find always important to understand what the seller wants uh, because it can be different and you're right the drafting that is sometimes a template um, but I will say it will depend on the type of attorney the seller has Um, if they don't use a transaction attorney, that can be really challenging, right? If it's just their business attorney, because a lot of the, the indemnifications or waivers and so on can be different than what we're looking for and what the seller um, seller's um, counsel may have. But for us, we work really closely with our attorneys and partners, um, as well as our you know tax and um, audit partners. But 
the lawyers, having a good transaction partner is incredibly important. And someone that can turn it around and kind of walk the land and, and walk you through it if you need it. Yeah, that is the most crucial is just keeping that process going and the document drafting and the drafts going back and forth. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it could take months sometimes. And it's just funny how sometimes sellers or buyers get hung up on just like one specific clause and that could create a huge delay. So counsel on both sides is mm-hmm. definitely very important. Yeah, and there's, you know, it, when you're going through it, it seems like sometimes the changes in the language are, are meaningless if you've done and you've read a lot of these, but at the same time, it's important to somebody for some reason. And, um, and so just getting through that. And then, you know, I think when you're going through these is having a good attorney and, and getting together at least once during that process so everybody has a film a familiar outcome and, and knows what they want as you're going through it to kind of avoid any landscape or landmines as you're going through the deal Byron, before we start talking a little bit more about the f- uh, finance and tax implications um you, you've gone through a, quite a few acquisitions that cross the finish line um how many times or what percentage you think are of your opportunities out in your career um didn't go across the finish line or maybe you were part way there and and something stalled in negotiations or, or the price just wasn't quite right or maybe there was a clause that the, the seller just didn't really care for? Well, that's a great question. I, I would say that in my experience, I have seen 10 for ten to 15% of the deals we were working on not hit the finish line, right, where you put all that time and effort into it. Um, and, you know, and even size and scope, you know, if, if you're working on a smaller transaction or a larger transaction, the amount of work on the front end and during the deal and after the deal is always the same. And so um, you really try to be, to work through it and, and figure out what it is that could be preventing it because the seller has the control, right? At some point, if they say no, it's no, and you, you kind of got to move on and, and learn from your mistakes to try and figure out what caused it. Um, sometimes you just don't know. could be the seller had something happen personally, but we've had several that haven't hit the finish line. And, you know, of of all the deals you do, um, you know, the the funny thing is, as they say, 80% are a success. Well, you know, I, I know of two that I've been part of that in my career that didn't turn out very well, right? You always try and do the right things. And so there's there's always that as well. Um, and and I've, I've learned myself over the years is you have to be really cautious and not just be the, the guy to get the deal done and really be critical because that can be a, can be as harmful as uh, not getting it done for the wrong or getting it done for the wrong reasons. So that, uh, that kind of initial filtering and intake um, is very critical to, you know, minimize the, uh, you know, potential waste of time. Um, Maybe we get uh, the tax guy in here, um, Matt Klein. Um, He's got, (laughs) he's got, he's helped uh, quite a few of these with the, with with the current or current clients and also with those with the, uh, that he had working in another firm. So, um, you know, we hear a lot about stock purchase versus asset purchase. Um, and Byron, uh, maybe you can talk about some of those challenges and Matt certainly uh, kind of take over some of these next few questions here. Yeah, I mean, I <clears throat> I think the tax implications depend on what side your us as advisors are are helping consult. You know, if we're if we're advising on the buy side, you know, we want an asset purchase because then we can allocate that purchase price and um, recover some tax benefits from from the investment quicker. Whereas on the sell side, uh, you want a stock purchase. And so 
that is normally, I don't know, Byron, one of the first things that get discussed when you're structuring a deal or a letter of intent. I mean, obviously you guys, you're on the buy side most of the time. Have you been on the buy side most of your career? I have, with the exception of uh, two opportunities, we were on the buy side and um, you position it very well as the buyer. We always wanted to do it as an asset transaction versus the stock deal mm -hmm. um, for a lot of different reasons. Mm -hmm. And it kind of all depends on the, what company are you buying? What are they, you know, are they a C Corp now? Are they an LLC partnership, S Corp? You know, it's just, you got to get to know your target and um, what's important to the seller too. Um, sometimes you have to kind of cave in on that, right? Um, where, you know what, you're, you might be buying stock and, you know, that's what it takes to get the deal done, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there, our, our recent experience was, um, an actual stock transaction um, and you guys were very helpful but what I can say is um, it does create an extra level of um, challenges for us in terms of you know doing a, a deeper dive on potential future liabilities because you're you're taking everything on when you do the stock deal as opposed to an asset deal we just kind of start over um, you know and so in my experience we did two stock deals in what I'm 25 years the rest were all asset purchases but um, the recent asset purchase, you know, the, the way it worked, it was, it actually was a good structure for us in the beginning, mm -hmm. um, but also understanding what that seller wants is important as a buyer. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, in our past, would have paid possibly a little bit more to help um, cover some of that potential tax liability mm -hmm. because we knew what they were looking for in, in, in terms of a net. So getting to, to have that relationship with the seller where you can work together on it is mm -hmm. important, but my preference, as you noted, is was always the asset deal where we can step up the assets, get some of that tax benefit right away. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, you know, that comes a whole set of challenges, right? You're basically right. starting a new business up. Right. And it involves a lot more of your own team's work on the front end to mm -hmm. set everything up, new company, rehire employees. So uh, with that benefit for you on the asset side, it, there is some extra work. Right. And sometimes you might be stuck either way because you might have contracts that, mm -hmm. you know, if you buy stock, those contracts legally, I'm not a lawyer, but so no, no legal advice here, but just general M&A uh, knowledge is those contracts can carry over with little interruption. And then if you're buying assets, you're, it's a new legal entity. You, you, you could, might have to renegotiate some contracts, but in, on, on the tax side of things, there's a lot of, you know, the IRS and treasury has, has, uh, recognize that and so there's a lot of various elections that where legally it could be a stock deal but from a tax perspective it's an asset deal so there's some more flexibility on the tax side than than there is probably on the legal side there how about a couple questions relating to um you know purchasing these assets they're recorded at historic cost you're gonna be paying typically more than what's usually <laughs> what's on what's on the cost basis so just in terms of um, you know the valuing those assets uh, from particularly uh, tax perspective and then some of the some of the, the gap rules will kind of follow but just in terms of uh, uh, revaluing fixed assets uh, goodwill customer list those kind of things just talk a little bit about that process you know it, depending on the size and scope again you know for larger transactions we would historically actually engage an appraisal firm that would come in and, and look at the list of the fixed assets and and then go through it and they would also do some work on what customer lists were how they could be valued and so on 
Um, in a recent transaction, we, we actually went back and we looked at the actual useful lives of what they had, the assets, and figured out what that value could be stepped up to. It wasn't as big a transaction, and we were able to do that pretty successfully. You know, some of the challenges are you want to get as much of the life into the, as much value as you can into those assets, but keeping it reasonable, um, and then understanding what type of assets you're really buying. Mm -hmm. um, it's easy to say you want to put all this value on it, but if the assets have a limited value and timeline, um, you know, you, you end up with um, assets you can end up having to replace in two or three years, and you put a ton of value on them. And, you know, that, that is what it is, but you just have to understand that those things can happen mm -hmm. where you're taking some, you know, accelerated write-offs related to the, the assets you set up. So it's, it's fine. It becomes fine-tuning mm -hmm. where you want to do it right, get the most tax benefit, but at the same time make sure you're running the, the business appropriately and not making any missteps. And it gets negotiated too. Yes. Because <laughs> the value has to match both on the buy side mm -hmm. and the sell side. So, yeah. You know, again, there's conflicting oil and water there. You know, buyer, oh, that truck's not worth right ten thousand dollars. It's worth two. It needs an oil change. You know, but you know, as the buyer, you think it's worth ten thousand dollars. You want to allocate the purchase price to that so you can write it off. But you know, there's it's all, it's all negotiation. Yeah, it's it's the the entire transaction becomes negotiable. Everything down from the values to the certain life of a of an agreement within the agreement and um, indemnifi indemnification timeline. So yeah, it's it's a it's a very interesting dance as you go through the transaction and from the tax to the assets to the people. Mm -hmm. Just from a tax perspective for both Matt and Byron, have either of you been a part of a transaction that um, the allocation was questioned by, you know, for instance, the IRS? I have not personally. Um, I think the the issue where it could get questioned is if the buyer reports a different um, purchase price allocation than the seller, because there is a form that you need to file with a with specifically an asset purchase or a stock purchase that's treated as an asset purchase for tax um, where both the buyer and the seller have to report that out on the form and report it to the IRS so it, it, I haven't run into it in my career um, Byron I don't know if you have and but uh, yeah no that's just important communication and and making sure that that purchase price allocation is it's generally in the documents um, of the either the closing statement or the the final um, asset purchase agreement, you know, it's normally an exhibit and it gets so everybody knows where where it's at. So Matt, you would have to, uh, as your role as a tax partner here, you would have to uh, in some of these situations would have to kind of reach out across the aisle potentially and work with that whoever the tax accountant was on that company being acquired and making sure that things are lining up or or they should reach out to you. How does that kind of process just work? Well, there's there's a lot of a lot of that process stuff in my experience is laid out in the purchase agreements. You know, it's it's laid out where you know the the buyer will you know share information related to to the uh, purchase price allocation, how it gets reported, and everything. Um, so there's sometimes there's strict strict policies that need to be followed in the in the APA, but just general practice, it's good to it's good to have that 
communication, you know, with with your counterpart over there to make sure that that everything is is in line and agreed upon and um because there could be negative consequences if just miscommunication with the IRS knocking on the door saying, "Hey, what's going on here? Um you got higher value in vehicles than what the seller reported. You're taking too much depreciation, you know." show me the documents and then you got the IRS uh kind of combing their way through the documents which which can be a tedious process and even in an asset purchase you're probably still reviewing those those tax returns and mm-hmm. especially if they're multi-state um maybe there's some you know interesting or maybe they got some deductions that you typically wouldn't see or etc or maybe just tax treatment of different transactions so um, maybe talk about reviewing those kind of tax returns from, for both of your perspectives in terms of how that decision is made, um, you know, in the uh, negotiation. Yeah, from it depends on the structure of the deal to from a from a stock sale, um, you know, that name is transferring over where we're basically liable potentially for any, you know, bad tax positions that were made by the by the seller in the past. Um, so we generally take a closer look through the due diligence process and then it kind of all, if we do spot issues, it kind of all goes into the indemnity clauses and the holdbacks and everything. Um, the most, even, uh, even in an asset sale, the, the most, the, the, the issues that I see the most on the tax side are the state and local taxes. Um, those rules are so complex, um, and very challenging and um, each state's different so you got a lot of different jurisdictions with different laws taxing the business differently Um, so you know there might be a state that we come across where we think they need to file in and they've never filed in and well the statute never runs because they they've never filed in there so they've got all this potential liability in whatever state that they've never paid tax in so that all needs to get worked out in the purchase agreement but then even you know kind of working on the internal side um byron maybe you could talk about this more is the sales tax right are they withholding sales tax from their customers are that you know all use tax all of those little detailed state taxes local taxes city taxes that um that that could become a big issue from a business yeah you know so it's as, as I reflect on, on a stock deal and, you know, we start looking at tax returns is um, we rely really heavily on our tax and audit partners to help look at that. I mean, we're, we're not tax experts, so we do we do lean in and get the appropriate amount of help as, that we need to make sure we're covering it because, you know, those, those can be big future liabilities, so we want to make sure we cover it. On the, you know, state and local tax, um, we are in a complicated business today where we file in a lot of different states in a lot of different cities so we will look at each of those states that they're doing business in and then look at the returns Um, we'll have our team do it and look at it because um, they do it every every month every quarter to make sure that um, specifically if we're doing business in the same states we're, we're cognizant of what they've done so we can at least have some high level of confidence that it's been done consistent to how we're doing it and then um, there's always that chance where they didn't want to file in a specific state or city where you have to look like you're saying, Matt. And um, 
kind of evaluate that liability. Is it is there one or isn't there one? No different than we do when we start selling into a new state. You know, what's the threshold for sales before you have to start filing? So um, it gets pretty, I wouldn't say more complicated. It just, it will broaden your scope of due diligence because those are um, potential future liabilities that you just want to be aware of. Or make sure that on day one or day two, day three, that you're you're looking into it and making sure that you continue to file it and that they're all current. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some companies kind of keep some strange assets and liabilities on their books. They're kind of things that it really aren't, you know, operating to the core of the business. Um, could you talk a little bit about in, the, you know, in that negotiation process, just strategies or communications on trying to, you know, for those companies that are being acquired or those assets being acquired to get some of those items off the books if possible prior to, the transaction a just for gap financial reporting simplicity and b just for potential like tax savings or you know um yeah any cabins in the business any boats um (laughs) funny you say that yes we actually um we had done a transaction um and there was a uh a motorhome um that was completely decked out for the college um sports that they love to follow their alma mater so that was an asset we wanted to um remove from the pool and there was also a a cabin and so or a condo and so we yeah you just figure out what the values are to those and exclude them because that's not really part of the business right or what you're buying and there was no intent to buy it so really being clear up front that says you know we we're not paying for the cabin we're not buying the motorhome um you don't want to own a motorhome or a cabin no, we don't. It, it, there was, there's really never been a purpose. And so you just you clean up the balance sheet, right? It's a great question, Dan. Thank you. Uh, can we, you know, ask what team that motorhome was for? <laughs> it was in Iowa. That's all I'll tell you. Fair enough. <laughs> that, that makes sense. I, I once went to a football game in Iowa, and I think the tailgate started about 6 a.m. So it was pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So in terms of uh, just generally speaking, you will, you know, as, as a purchaser or seller, I mean, you're going to be engaging your CPAs fairly frequently in this process. Um, and, you know, at some point you're going to be, you know, confidentiality, you know, maybe there'll be some non-disclosure agreements. But um, about how far along do you um, kind of pick up the phone and uh, talk to your CPA about, you know, about the potential for transaction? Well, I, I would like to think that this will be the right answer. Um, I, I would generally call them right at the time we're working on the LOI or immediately when it's signed. Um, and sometimes <clears throat> even before the LOIs, because we may have questions about tax treatment or potential exposure, and so I would I would call sooner. Um, I find it's always better to have your partners involved along the way and not bring them in at the last minute because it, it doesn't serve anybody any good. We're not trying to hide anything. It's all confidential, and so if we can get together and meet, um, and, and I must confess, there are always good questions brought to the table by your partners, right? Did you think about this or that? Um, and oftentimes we don't, right? There, there are other priorities that you're dealing with, and so it's just good. It's a good refresher. So, no, we, we like to bring them in as soon as we can um, because it, it's helpful because after the transactions are going to have to be part of it, so they might as well be on the front end understand what you're buying or what you're trying to do and then you know give you guidance on your end right how, how are we going to treat this what are we going to do you know what elections can we or can't we make in order to get some benefit so i always say sooner than later yeah the most challenging thing as a cpa trying to advise clients is when they're so far down the road and you don't know about it 
you know, they got a signed purchase agreement and they just say, Hey, here's, I sold my business or I'm selling, we're closing in a week. Can you let me know how much taxes I'm going to pay? Well, then you got to get into the deal. You're way behind. It's normally a tight turnaround. There's generally issues, details, questions. Um, it's just tough to advise your clients when, when you're brought in that late. I think, you know, we, if, if, our client is buying a business. Uh, we generally like to be in, um, you know, pre LOI, uh, maybe as you know, once, once you guys have determined the price, the initial structure, um, you know, that way we could advise on the front end of, Hey, what, what tax structure should we do? Um, on the sell side, obviously we generally don't get involved until our client gets an LOI. Um, because that's kind of the first sheet of paper slid across the table of here's the deal. Um, and so, you know, I think it's important depending on what side of the deal you're on, if you're on the buy side, you're the driver of the transaction. I mean, you're the one keeping it moving, um, making sure the documents, getting the attorneys on board and, and getting the seller to be timely too. Um, because they're running a business, you know, they, they pro- they're still doing their day job. Um, and so, you know, keeping them on task can be challenging to um, sell side. You're a little more reactive and countering. And um, so it is a different role depending on what side of the deal you're on. So I, that's interesting as a, as a seller that um, they wouldn't get you involved until the LOI is signed. I just not really till the LOI is signed until maybe there's a draft. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah until there's something in writing that says, here's the deal, and then we can go back and make changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, just kind of a higher level question here. Um, you know, most of the acquisitions you've been part of, have they been more, let's just say, geographical, maybe you're into a new market, new customer base, or have there been some that are, maybe that's a competitor and you're purchasing them out to get some like get some better synergies or you know reduce your, reduce your costs? Can you talk a little bit about at a high level, just sure. You know, early in my career, when I was, um, we were buying more uh, office products companies. It was really product growth or expansion of a product line or getting into a new product line. Um, and so there were oftentimes we would just buy the product and not the entire manufacturing. So we were able to do that. So that was great because we were buying product lines and no people came with it, which was awesome because that's a whole other set of challenges in a, in a good way. Um, you know, and then we would get into manuf- to the entire plan and we would look at geography, right? Um, because in certain industries, if you have a core input going into that product, it's what proximity can you be with manufacturing to get it there at a low cost, right? Or is there another way to get the product there so you can really take l- and leverage your own manufacturing? So we looked at geography. Um, we actually would look at uh, manufacturing competencies. You know, what, what could they make or what could we do to help them make more? What was the size of the facility and the geography that they were in from a, a size of the community? So we would take both of those into account. You know, I, I find that um, it's, it's great to be in a specific geography. I mean, I look at our business today and where we are and where there are opportunities to grow. Um, and from a, you think about it during the, after many years is, you know, sometimes it's nice to be in a specific area or geography just from being able to get out and and be with everybody and make sure you're able to get to the appropriate meetings and, and just be part of the team. So that can have some influence, but at the end of the day is, is it a really good business that fits your growth strategy, right? And does it meet your growth strategy? And is it a, a core competency? Um, 
you know, having bought businesses that weren't part of a core competency and they didn't work out. Um, I've kind of seen the downside of looking for growth just for the sake of growth versus being very strategic about what you want to buy and where you want to grow. And we talked a lot of the financial and the tax, but certainly with some of these, you know, businesses over time that you've acquired, there's probably an emotional thing. Like there's probably, you know, you got to go to the flight of the company. There's an announcement over, over lunch or in the, you know, training room or break room, however, about, to, you know, let the employees know that this happened. Um, you know, what, what, what's that like? Um, yeah, the, you know, the, the announcement's always critical because it's important for the seller to let people know, and and they like to keep it as confidential and to a small team during the process. And so then you do the big announcement, and you're standing there, and, you're, you know, you want, you want everybody to be excited, but what it, it does create is a whole lot of questions, right? And so I've always found that, you know, you need somebody on the ground for the next three to four days just to answer people's questions so they get comfortable, so they know what you're there for. And um, an early common mistake was saying we're not going to change much, right, which – was a big mistake early in my career and making sure you say you're going to make change and because change is very personal to people from it can be something really big to something really small so making sure you understand that change is going to happen you're honest about it um, and you over communicate that because um, you want people to know what's coming it's generally you want it to be exciting Um, you know they start getting paychecks at a different timing and from a different company or a different provider that's change and that's very personal so being very cognizant of that. I got one last question. Mm. When you're looking at a potential target, have you ever had any where you've started looking, digging under the hood, and you you end up walking away and you're like, man, I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. What was what were kind of those red flags? You know, d- d- domestically, I have never had any real red flags domestically. Generally, the businesses were what we thought they were. You know, there's always a little something. There's a hidden gem or there's something you don't anticipate. It did happen one time overseas where, you know, you start looking at it and you're going, well, where did that go or where did that go? And so those are red flags when they can't, you can't trace it or find it or make sense of it. So, yes, there was, there have been one or two. And Byron, just finally, as we're wrapping up, just any, any other just, you know, um, you talk about change, any other just kind of like lessons you've learned over your career about, you know, what you might do differently on some of these or. Yeah. You know, I've always be open to change and, and it's at that change, as I would say, is always be open to finding new things um, and understanding that it happens over time. Right. And it's not always what you thought you were buying that you're getting. There's maybe other value to it where it's um, a product line that you didn't anticipate to be phenomenal um, pulls through and it really made the deal um, extra special or you know you do find great people where you found somebody that was in a smaller company but they really stood out and they become a leader of a bigger region so yeah it's just looking for those opportunities in the people um, but also in the business well thank you very much Byron uh, appreciate the you know they are who we thought they were kind of line uh, thanks to you know the late great coach Denny Green they are who we thought they were we let them off the hook so Speaking of which, we're going to let you off the hook. Thanks again for your time today. Thanks, guys. Good to be here. Check out all of our podcast episodes on the Q&A Over Coffee page on the Olson Thielen website. This is also a place where you can sign up to be notified whenever a new episode goes live. You can also listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon. 
And be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.